0: Hey, everybody. Randy here. Uh, Before we get to the episode, I want to thank Herbal Active for once again sponsoring the trap draw. Um, We really appreciate their support. If you've been in the market for CBD and want to give it a try, please visit herbalactive.com. U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Um, when you do go, use TRAPDRAW20, the code TRAPDRAW20, to receive 20% off your order. We thank them, and now on to today's episode. This
1: hey. hey, 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 I told him straight drop this and zip lock that, hey. right on my waist why I kept that strap yeah I remember nights I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy I had to get it right now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper hey and I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper the absolute truth yeah no show so who me I emerged
0: from the trap ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the trap draw my guest today, I've been looking forward to this one, is author Kevin Robbins. Uh, As a brief introduction, Kevin is an award-winning journalist. He wrote for a plethora of daily papers uh, for over two decades in Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Tennessee, and Texas. As of 2012, he joined the University of Texas staff as an associate professor in the School of Journalism, uh, where he also serves as director of student engagement at the Moody College of Communication Center for Sports Communication and Media. Uh, Kevin, that one, last one was a mouthful. I, I do want to also note you, you've you written one previous book. It's called Harvey Penick, The Life and Wisdom of the Man Who Wrote the Book on Golf. Uh, Ke- Kevin, welcome to the chapter How are you today?
1: Thanks. I'm so good and really glad to be with you.
0: Well thank you thank you. Uh your new book for those um who who haven't heard yet, your new book that's coming out October 8th is The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, The Year Golf Changed Forever. And my first question this being your second book was that, was anything about the process easier this time around?
1: Yeah, uh only everything. I I <laughs> I uh I, I I much more knew what I was doing and uh, in my in my first book that you mentioned, the biography of, of Harvey Penick, I, I started right in the middle uh, in a, a scene in 1950. I had to start in order to make my deadline, and with this book, uh, I was able to start at the very beginning. I started uh, with the first words that that you read in the manuscript, and I finished with the last one. So um, every literally everything about it was easier, and also this was just a sharper story. It was it took place within mainly within the the confines of one year 1999 i wasn't writing about a man's entire life so uh it was simpler all the way around
0: and i want to dive in obviously to to the Payne stewart book but before i just want to ask what what is the most stressful part of writing a book is it and, and that might be a, a dumb question on the surface but is it the actual writing or is it the editing is it seeing it through to completion what what's what's the most challenging part of it for you
1: Interesting question. I was reading a review of Stephen Harrigan's new book, A uh, History of Texas, uh, today in, in the Austin American Statesman. And uh, Harrigan had these really wise words to say about starting uh, a piece of writing. He says this He says, If you wait until you feel authorized to write it, you will never begin. Every paragraph you write helps you discern the shape of the next one. So, my answer to that is starting. <clears throat> At some point, uh, I've learned that I, I need to quit researching, I need to quit thinking, I need to quit procrastinating, and just and just start. And honestly, that is the hardest part. And and this what what Harrigan says about authorization is 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 really something that spoke to me. Like I didn't know when I was uh ready, when I was authorized to start writing this book. And the answer was I was ready and I was ready probably a long time before I wrote the first word. He just got to start.
0: Well, let me, let me ask you then, because I think that's a natural um, lead-in to, to what I want to ask about, and, and obviously to do with this book, uh, Payne Stewart in, in 1999, what was the, the genesis for the book? What made Payne Stewart specifically and that year, 1999, an enticing combination for you?
1: I wish I had a really interesting answer for you. It was kind of a confluence of things. I was uh, a year from uh, the publication of the first book, and honestly, when I when I when I finished the first book, I I thought this will be my one and only book. I've done it, Um, but so many sacrifices are involved in writing a book. Um, Things have to go, and I, I have a family, I have a wife and two children and I have a job, a full-time job, those, those couldn't go. So I had to quit golf. I had to quit a lot of things that I enjoy doing to, to finish a book. And for for all of those reasons, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll write this one book and I'll be done. <clears throat> well, you know, like a year passed and I started to get the itch again. Uh, and, and it happened like this. I was in front of my computer one Saturday night. It was um, in November of uh, 2016. <clears throat> and I don't know how I ended up looking into Payne. I'm from Kansas city. And so, you know, Payne Stewart, Haler, when, and Tom Watson, were probably the most notable golfers from Missouri. Uh, So I'd always had a sort of a passing interest in, in his life and his career. and, And for reasons we'll get into later, I identified with Payne Stewart in a lot of really fundamental ways. You know, maybe that's how I ended up on him. But uh, that night in November of, of 2016, I, I somehow ended up stumbling upon the final uh, National Transportation Safety Board report on the uh, the incident that killed him. And this report hadn't been released in full to the public uh, until uh, like 2005, well after his death, and well after Tracy uh, Payne's widow had written her book, and well after most of the journalism had been written about. Uh, the the flight that killed Payne and, and uh, five other people. So I started looking into this document as, as government report uh, reports are, it was just uh, incredibly detailed. Um, there's, there's video from the military escort planes that were in the air that day, October 25th, 1999 flying alongside his Learjet. Uh, <clears throat> and it's just an amazing uh, piece of history. This document. It's, it's uh, 1,400 page long, pages long. And I just got absorbed by this thing. And so my initial pitch to my agent was a book about the, that flight that day. And my agent, a really bright guy named Jim Hornfisher, is really good at uh, understanding the difference between a, a book and a magazine article, which is still a distin- distinction I have, I have trouble making. Anyway, Jim told me it was a good magazine article, but it wasn't big enough for a book. And he asked me if there was something, if, the, the, if there was something bigger about Payne's life that I could draw out of it. And, and then I started looking at, at his last year of life, this magical season of 99. Uh, and it became clear to me that, that given the, the 20 years of distance between now and his death, that maybe a reappraisal of that season and by extension of his life, uh, was it was time to do that. So that's how it happened.
0: Did you initially plan? I, I'm, I'm curious about how 1999 fits in. And, you know, I, I, we'll get to it and maybe we just jump into it right now. Um, it's obviously, as, as you call it, the, the year golf changed forever. My question, did you initially plan to tie the two subjects together, that being Payne Stewart, his tragic death with this larger change going on in, in, in the game of golf, or did those two things come about naturally uh, the the more you researched and the more you got into, um, the, the preliminary work?
1: Yeah, it was both. Um, so (laughs) before, before I submit a, like a, a book proposal or a pitch, um, I, I, I try to give. I I, what am I saying? I've only done this twice. It's not like I'm any expert, but uh, I, I wanted to give this this particular pitch some thought. I wanted to give it, you know, uh, some weight, and I just I I didn't want I didn't want another biography of Payne Stewart. I, I didn't think that that would work. Uh, so I think you know you know what happened. I was it was at the USGA. Uh, Annual meeting in Washington D.C. in 2017 in January of 2017, and um, I saw Bradley Klein there, and I told him that I was thinking of this idea, and I told him that I wanted to tie it to something bigger that was going on in golf. I mean, it, it was after all 1999; it was the end of the millennium, and um, I wondered if there was something something larger at work. And I think I even asked him, like, what was going on in golf in 99, and he said, well, oh, you know, uh, only everything. Uh, the Pro V1 was in testing. The The first hybrid, TaylorMade had introduced the, the rescue. Uh, and, and we were seeing athletes play golf. You know, Tiger Woods and guys who, who hit the ball a long way and didn't care as much whether it landed in the fairway. And all of that sounded, you know, like, wow, that's really familiar. That's the kind of golf we see today. And so... That particular thing, I started giving some thought and I thought, well, maybe this is the birth of sort of postmodern golf, uh, bomb and gouge golf. And the the players who were really making, an, the young players who were making an impression in 99 were, were Tiger Woods, Sergio Garcia, uh, a fairly young Phil Mickelson, he was 29, David Duvall, Vijay Singh, and players like Payne who... Here's the distinction I want to make. Payne Stewart and people of his generation, which I define as players born before 1960, they had to learn with steel shafts and with ballada balls and with forged heads and and with persimmon uh, woods. And it, the game was just harder then because they were playing with this intolerant equipment. And I'm I don't, I'm not out to say that Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and this generation of players that they're not shot makers they are, but golf is was easier for them to learn because they were able to learn with more forgiving equipment. Now that and Payne Stewart did not ha, didn't have that luxury. So anyway, that's how this this broader idea parallel story, if you want to call it, happened.
0: Well, let's dive into it. I, I want to start with let, let's. Let's talk about Payne Stewart, obviously. And my purpose is I want to paint a a picture. Um, I'm 35 years old. My enduring memories of Payne Stewart are twofold. One, I know him as the guy who wore, obviously, the the wardrobe, Mm. right? The knickers, the the hat, um, represented or, or would dress in NFL colors, depending on what city he was playing in. And then, of course, his victory at Pinehurst in 1999 at the U.S. Open, uh, where he famously you know, grabs Mickelson's face after the, the winning putt and tells him, you know, you're going to be a father. L- let's go back to the start, if we can, and, and a young Payne Stewart. In, in your research, what talk to me about kind of his roots in the game, who his influences were, and, you know, if we can, you know, from from childhood to when he turned pro in 1979, what what are the important things to glean about Payne Stewart?
1: Yeah, I have a few things to say, but first let me say this: that I, I wrote this book for you and, and your generation. I'm I'm 53, and so I I I witnessed Payne's career in full, and I, I thought I knew his story. It turns out I knew the high points, and and you know a couple of the high points, and and people of your generation know the high points and so there are gaps to fill and that's what i tried to do here uh so Payne was was born in uh springfield missouri in the ozarks of missouri which is a, a bit of my ancestral home too my family's had a, a a cabin on the lake of the ozarks near springfield since the 1950s so i'm very familiar with the setting <laughs> it's uh springfield's the a, a, a By most definitions, you know, a medium-sized city, Uh, not terribly cosmopolitan um, flyover country. And uh, interestingly enough, Springfield, Missouri, let's say population 150,000 is home to uh, two of the first 10 winners of the Masters Tournament, Herman Kaiser and Horton Smith, both were from Springfield, Missouri. Horton Smith won the first one and the third one. Herman Kaiser won in 1946, which I think is pretty incredible uh, feat for uh, a city of of Springfield size. At any rate,
0: I let me. Sorry, I I love (laughs) stuff like that. Isn't that crazy?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's just those little random
0: nuggets. That that's fantastic. Yeah,
1: it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, So, at any rate, Payne was was uh, born and raised in in Springfield. His father was a, a mattress salesman. His father was an excellent player. Uh, had a membership at Hickory Hills Country Club in Springfield. Payne was uh, a gifted athlete, played all the sports, varsity, football, basketball, and baseball in high school and golf, and um, went to SMU on a partial golf scholarship, Uh, was not an exceptional player there until his senior year when he finally won, and he won three times. Um, He beat Fred Couples in the Southwest Conference Conference, uh, championship in uh, Tyler, Texas, and that granted him his first start on the PGA Tour at the Colonial Invitational, where he missed the cut. And he, uh, so um, he, was, uh, he was a player of promise, but very little discipline. Uh, he, he, uh, he didn't like to practice. He liked to play, and that way he's a lot like Ben Crenshaw, but he didn't have the, 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 the fingertips or the, the feel or the soul of, of Crenshaw. Um, and he liked to party a whole lot more. So he had a great time in college. He actually graduated uh, with a business degree from SMU, which I think is is worth noting. Um, tried to get on the PGA tour three times, didn't make it. Went to Asia, which was fortuitous for Payne because that's where he met his wife Tracy, and uh, finally got on the tour in 1982. Made it through qualifying school, and he won his first event that year, an event in Mississippi called the Magnolia, that no longer exists. It was a it was an off uh, off week event of the I think the Masters or maybe the British Open at any rate it didn't count as an uh, an official PGA Tour win and so his first official PGA Tour win came in Illinois at what we now know as the John Deere so you know he he was a gifted and instinctive player who had extraordinary hand eye coordination. Had a had a lovely golf swing, a great move at it. A lot of people can recognize could recognize his swing from a distance. Uh, a very old fashioned kind of old school move, old world move. Uh, he uh, he actually pushed the the, uh, the handle of the the grip of the golf club to his right rather than what we see now as a forward press to the left for a right handed golfer. Uh, he learned that move from his teacher at Hickory Hills in Springfield. He called it the pullback motion. And, uh, it's very much like Bobby Jones, uh, in, in that way, in the way that he, uh, initiated the swing. It was a long swing. It was a graceful swing, very upright. And, um, uh, it was a swing that should have won a lot more golf tournaments that he committed more of his time to working at it. And so, um, didn't really, you know, didn't win a lot as a young player and, uh, Got a lot, made a lot of money and, and was able to keep his card. Made made a lot of cuts, um, and and won a few uh, insignificant, you know, like B level tournaments. But um, and competed well in the majors until '89 when he won his first one. But n- didn't win one until his 29th major, and that was the 1989 PGA Championship.
0: Do you think was it was it just a natural progression for him, or or did something change in his life? Um, what do you attribute to that breakthrough?
1: Yeah, I think it was more of a natural progression. He was 32 when he won the 1989 PGA Championship at Kemper Lakes in Chicago. And um, <clears throat> you mentioned the word maturity, and uh, I would say that maturity wasn't an asset of Payne Stewart's, especially at that point in his life. And, and in fact, maturity, his lack of. Maturity really held him back. He was he was a bit moody and a bit impetuous um, and uh, undisciplined, as I said. So you know, he was 32 and, and just a, a player who was destined to win a major and finally did, uh, sort of despite himself. He was a guy who uh, who let losses and uh, and setbacks and failures and just bad twists of fate. They let him. He let those. Uh, get to him and, and hold him back. And um, and that's the player he was really until, and I know we're jumping too far ahead here, but really until 1998.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I certainly would love if if there are, you know, important nuggets that, that you can share about that time period, almost from the late 80s to 1998 about pain. I, I think one thing, you know, scanning the book and, and doing a little bit of research that surprised me i both in your words, maybe, but it but in others who who have reviewed the book, you know, they describe pain as pompous and bratish and big mouth. And yeah. I, I think f- for me, again, going back to what I remember of pain which was so colored by 1999, that was a bit of a surprise for me. And and so I was wondering if you could kind of touch on <laughs> or go into detail on on how he earned that reputation and and whether that I, I think. You know, you said it was there kind of all along, but obviously it got worse, um, maybe into the early and and mid '90s.
1: Right. Um, Well, yeah, I list you know quite a few uh, examples of his um, conduct and comportment in the book. Um, 1989 is a is a good place to start. He he was six shots behind on Sunday of the PGA championship. The leader was Mike Reed, very popular straight hitting short hitter and Payne birdied. I'm going to get my, I'm, I don't want to get my facts incorrect here, but I think he birdied for the last six holes shot 31 on the back and had the clubhouse lead. And he came into the scoring area as Mike Reed was playing the last holes and Reed was struggling. He uh, he rinsed a tee shot on 16, uh, got up and down from 12 feet for a bogey, and then he he kind of fluffed a chip shot on 17, a par three, and ended up making a double. You know, I mean, it's just the worst, and it sort of cast a pall on the the entire setting. Uh, you know, who likes to watch that, especially with a popular guy like Mike Reed? It's not that. People were rooting for him to win. They, I think they just hated to see somebody, a good guy like Mike Reed, lose that way. Well, and and Payne's in the in the scoring area, and he's kind of like clowning around. He's 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 sort of acting for the camera, and he's popping like peanuts and just acting regrettably. Uh, it wasn't a good look, and and then Reed had a putt to to tie and send it to playoff and he missed the putt on the 18th so Payne wins and he in the in the post round press conference says some things uh, that are a little self-absorbed that aren't very he was just kind of like not reading the room they were a little tone deaf he was far too celebratory for the occasion um self-referential and it was just a really bad in what should have been a uh a triumphant uh situation it felt like too much and and that's just who Payne Stewart was at the time at, at the age of thirty two it wasn't the man he was in in ninety nine at the age of forty two so I don't he, got, he that was a can I can, can I can I can yeah, I interrupt please, you real please. quick?
0: What at at, at thirty two and, and around this time, what what was his reputation like among the fellow players? Did he have a lot of friends out on tour? Um, who who was he close with?
1: He he had friends on on tour. Um, you know, I think the one that most people remember is his friendship with Paul Aizengrer, and and they were friends. They they weren't. Uh, they weren't blood brothers. I, you know, I don't think Payne Stewart was the type of person to have that sort of close personal relationship with other men. And let's, you know, and also the tour at that time is, uh, and still is. It's it's a it's a group of competitors who are friendly with each other, but substantial relationships I think are pretty rare. And so Payne, he was a prankster. He was kind of like bigger than life. Um, he was too much for some people and, and he was, he was loud and sometimes he spoke before he thought, and that was too much for some people too. So, um, I would say in my estimation, most players sort of kept him at arm's length. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's who he was in, in 89 and really up until 98 when everything started to change.
0: Well, let's, I, I, and I, you, you were given um, some examples there. I, just, just for any listener's sake, so Payne won six times between 1987 and 1999, or excuse me, Payne won six times between 1987 and 1991, including two majors, as you said, the, the 89 PGA and um, the US Open in, in 1991. And then, outside of a win in 1995, he he wouldn't win again on tour until '99. So it, it seems like he's you know this is all leading to um, some real low points for him, both on the course and and perhaps off. I was just wondering if if you could talk about some of those struggles on and off the course that that he experienced prior to kind of this resurgence uh, in 1998 and 1999.
1: Yeah, I can. And that's really an, an important um, component of this. So when people think about the pain steward of 1999 and the, the legacy that uh, he left from that year, they remember um, the, the spiritual transformation that, Uh, was just part of the story that year, and I'm not denying that, and I think definitely that belongs, but I think the more important period to consider and and what informed the, um, if you want to call it redemption or comeback story, is what happened between the 91 U.S. Open when he won at Hazeltine and the 98 U.S. Open when he lost the at uh, Olympic club to Lee Jansen. You're right. He won one time. Um, he, uh, he was a benefactor at the shell Houston open of, um, uh, Scott hoax losing a number of strokes on the back nine and paying one in a playoff. And so he went through a really dark time. Um, and there was, there was one season in particular, and I can't remember which one it was, but he only won like $180,000 and, he considered quitting the game, um, and I think that was a really that period that that, that period between ninety one and ninety eight was was terrifically humbling for him. Um, it was also a time when when his closest friend on tour, Paul Eisinger, learned that he had cancer. Uh, Paul lived in Tampa or Bradenton, south of Tampa. Payne lived in Orlando, and there were a lot of days when Payne went over to Paul's house and they got in the boat and went out fishing and. And uh, that meant a lot to, to Paul Eisinger. Um, not so much, it wasn't really like their conversation. It was just the fellowship, the presence. Paul's having somebody uh, sort of metaphorically who's got his back while he was undergoing treatment. Um, and I wonder...
0: I, I, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Sorry, just, just from the book, you say that the two of them never discussed... You know, they didn't discuss the cancer. No. They didn't discuss no. life or death or you know any any grand meaning. No. Um, but but you speculate perhaps pain in his own way was was kind of wrestling with those thoughts. Do you think that's fair to to say?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, and it, it is speculation, but I would call it informed speculation because Asinger uh, agrees to that that premise. Uh, Paul's one of Payne's um, oldest friends, a guy named Lamar Haynes, who played golf with with Payne at SMU and and remained his, his friend until the day he died. Pa- uh, Lamar lives in Dallas, and he was a, an extraordinary uh, uh, inspiration and presence throughout my reporting of this book. Um, Lamar agrees with this. I mean, it's not something that Payne articulated, uh, but... Um, but I, I do think that uh, thinking about his own mortality while Paul was undergoing this, this, his treatment and the uncertainty of a cancer diagnosis, I think that made pain confront his own life and questions like, what am I leaving? What am I saying? What is my life? What does my life even mean? And if my life ended tomorrow, would I be would I be able to look back and be satisfied with the way I lived it? I think those are all very legitimate questions that Payne asked himself in the nineties when he was playing poor golf and wondering, you know, maybe about the meaning of it all.
0: Well let's jump to nineteen ninety eight then, because you you say that's a very important part of, of the story here, um in, in the US open Talk talk to me about why that is.
1: So when when Payne won the 1991 U.S. Open at Hazeltine, he really he had the world at his feet. It was the second major in two years. Um, He was finally, I think, uh, in in his eyes, he was achieving all that he was destined to achieve. And there would be much much more, and then there wasn't. And he made a few mistakes. He, uh, as as many players do when they when they win a major, he 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 started saying yes to every opportunity, and that was that as we all know is exhausting. Um, you know, Jordan Spieth is probably a good example of that, and uh, so he played himself tired, and and also he made a a really consequential decision with his equipment. Payne signed a contract with Spalding. He Payne had always been a forged blade player. He played Mizuno's. Uh, and a wound ball player. Well, after he won the ninety-one U.S. Open, the specter of a lot of money and and a, uh, dangled in front of him by by Spalding was too much, and so he signed a big contract with Spalding, and he went to cast uh, uh, cavity back irons and a, a solid core ball, and so. That combination was just disastrous for him, and I went. I, I talked at great length with Chuck Cook, who was his coach, and is a guy who in, lives in Austin. He's a guy I've known for a long, long time about this, and and Payne had this hubris, which was very typical for him. But he had this hubris about him, where he thought he could win with anything, but it turns out that he couldn't, and he couldn't win with this equipment. Uh, and that that partially explains the. The, the dark uh, journey that he had through the 1990s. He comes to the 98 U.S. Open at Olympic Club in San Francisco with absolutely no momentum, no expectations. Nobody thinks of him as a favorite. And I think he opened with a 66, 4 under 66. He, uh, he led through the second round and then through the third round. And I believe he had his lead... At the halfway point on Sunday, and a lot of people will remember on, I believe it was hole number 12 or 13 at Olympic, where he, I think he hit um, either the first or second fairway of the day. He was really struggling on Sunday, and his ball settled into a sand-filled divot. And there was this protracted uh, discussion between him and Mike Hicks, his caddy, who was also a great help on this book about what to hit. And then they got put on the clock. Payne made bogey um, out of that sand-filled divot. Then he made another bogey. Basically, the, the U.S. Open was, was disappearing in, before his eyes at that point. Um, and he lost to Lee Jansen, who, was, who had been his foil in 1993 at Baltus Raw. Lee Jansen beat him in the U.S. Open there, too. But here's the thing to remember. Even though he lost, he lost with an uncommon grace the, the, the Payne Stewart people thought they knew before that moment in 1998 might have stormed into the post-round press conference and complained about the sand divot, complained about being put on the clock, complained about bad luck or fate turning his, against him or any number of things. You know, Payne was one as a young man to blame external forces for his failures. But this time on that Sunday in June of 1998, he went in and he admitted his own failures. He he basically said I didn't play good enough golf to win, and Lee Jansen deserves to win this championship. And that was our first glimpse at the Payne Stewart we all, we were all going to see in 1999.
0: How, wh- wh- what did those around him think about that change? W- was it was it as abrupt to them as as it maybe was to the wider golf uh, audience, or ha- was this something that that folks around him you know could see coming? It
1: seems it seemed abrupt. Because he hadn't really, he hadn't once He won in '95, and that was really the last time he was on the stage. And then he disappeared for a long, for a few years. And then he's back in '98 because he's the wire, wire-to-wire leader in the U.S. Open. So it did seem abrupt, but but no, it was it was, it was slow. It was transformative. It was again this uh, process of um, dealing with. And overcoming the the slump, um, the the faith, the so-called faith journey, uh, faith is so hard to write about, um, especially as a reporter. You know, we're like uh, journalists. We deal with empirical evidence, and there's no empirical evidence in faith. Um, looking at it in a completely black and white way, but but it's undeniable in in Payne's story, and that that was slow and largely his children, Aaron and Chelsea were the catalysts of that. They went to a, uh, they went to a, uh, a Baptist school in Orlando and that's where they were exposed to the Bible and biblical teachings. And they started talking to their dad about it. And that's how, and then, and then Payne joined a men's group, but you know, being a, a professional golfer, he's not home very many Sundays or, um, so uh, it was it was it was slow, and you know. Also, I also think about his his uh, wrestling with uh, mortality in the face of his friend's cancer diagnosis. Um, and here's another thing: this is and this is undeniable too. Pain's just getting older. Like he grew up late, and you know, we all grew up at different times. And, and I said earlier that I had some uh, uh, that I identified with Payne's story. And, and, and so, and here's what I want to say about that. And this is what made, this is what made his story appeal to me. And this is what I think gives it a broader appeal to is that pain story about becoming a better person. That's a story. That's our story. That's, that's my story. That's your story. That's everyone's story. We all, in the end, we want to keep getting better. I think people are always moving. They're all, they're always moving in one of two directions They're either moving up or they're moving down. They're getting better or they're getting worse, right? Well, I think we all, in the end, we want to be better tomorrow than we were today. And when we die, we want to be better than we were. And that's what Payne was doing in 1999. That's what he was doing when he took his hands and put them on Phil's face. That's what he was doing when he conceded the final putt to Colin Montgomery on single Sunday at Brookline in the Ryder Cup. That's the direction he was moving. And that's why I think, again, I told you, I wrote this story for you and your generation. That's what I want you to remember about his life is that he spent so many years failing. And in 1999, he was succeeding, not just as a golfer, but as a person.
0: Gosh, I love that thought. And I I think my excitement for this book is, is exactly... Because of that, because I I need to learn the story of Payne Stewart, and I think um, we can. Ladies and gentlemen, Randy again. Uh, I just want to thank Herbal Active again for sponsoring today's show. Herbal Active, U R B A L A C T I V. If you're in the market, I know CBD is all the rage right now. Um, if, if you're interested in trying it, I would encourage everybody to check out HerbalActive.com. What sets their product apart, it's water-soluble, there's absolutely zero THC, and their, their particle size uh, is smaller than the competition, uh, over 10 times smaller. So it, it's better absorbed by the body, and you get more um, of the good effects of, of the CBD. I know Tron won't stop raving about it. He's sleeping like a baby. I've actually, I'm, I'm training for a half marathon here in another few weeks, and I've been using the balm. You just saw my shoulders get sore and, and tensed and stressed, and um, I, I've noticed uh, just being a bit more relaxed, and that, that tension and and some of that soreness uh, is alleviated, which is very nice. So, um, I, I, I do know talking to them, they, they encourage people to use the, the drops. Uh, so you can put the drops in your coffee or your water uh, in the morning, and then in conjunction with that, the balm and the mints. Uh, it's just a better way to experience their product. So visit HerbalActive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Be sure to use the code TRAPDRAW20 get 20% off your order. And we really, really thank them for their support of the Trap Draw. Now back to the episode. Hey. Well, let's talk about then, you, you mentioned 1999 and, and some of the highlights. His, his breakthrough really happens, at least in terms of winning and, and kind of getting a, a monkey off his back, so to say. Uh, it was at the Heritage in, in Hilton Head uh, that April of 1999, which then obviously sets up uh, the U.S. Open, the, the famous U.S. Open victory. Uh, what, what What stands out to you about you know anything anything you want to say about about those victories or anything in your reporting that that really stands out yeah
1: it's it is important now let, let me do a little uh a correction so while while Payne did often play Hilton Head really well he also played Pebble Beach really well even during the slump years and it was actually Pebble Beach in 1999 he won the at t Pro-Am uh, yeah oh,
0: okay okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. um well, hey, listen, listen, it's all good. I, I am, <laughs> well, let me, um, you know what? I'm not even going to edit that one out. I'll, I'll own my mistakes. Um, Payne okay, would so, want you so, to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Gosh, I had written down. I. Uh, anyway, thank you for correcting all good. me.
1: Yeah. So, so Payne comes into Pebble Beach. Um, he had, he had spent uh, some time in Austin with his instructor, Chuck, and Uh, You know, for no really definable reason, things were looking good. And, uh, you know, Payne finished out in 98. He didn't win anything, but his form was good, uh, better than it had been for a while. He was buoyed by his uh, performance at at Olympic. Um, And then he came into 99 feeling like it would be a better year. And uh, so he wins at Pebble Beach. But here's the thing. The last day got rained out. And so he sort of won by default. He was the winner after three rounds. And so therefore he was the winner of the at and And he was happy to have won. Uh, you know, he, he held the trophy. He kissed the trophy. He cashed the check. But it also ground on him a little bit that it wasn't a 72-hole four-round tournament that he had won. He still needed to prove to himself and to... Um, everyone else that he could win a four-round tournament. He uh, the week the tournament before the U.S. Open that year was in Memphis. He missed the cut. He and his caddy Mike Hicks met his instructor Chuck Cook in Pinehurst on um, that Saturday. Uh, excuse me, that Sunday, and they went directly to the golf course, Pinehurst Number Two, and um, started charting out a a path to success. And it was an incredibly methodical meticulous, deliberate preparation for that U.S. Open that involved really spending a lot of time around those crowned greens, hitting all kinds of different recovery shots in the case that he missed greens, which of course he was going to as a U.S. Open, and on those crowned greens you're gonna miss you're gonna miss them. Uh, it was a really impressive plan that he put together to play that that championship that year.
0: You know, I think I think everybody. Um remembers, at, at least people of a certain age, rem- remember his, his ultimate victory there. And, of course, we were actually just in Pinehurst uh, a couple weeks ago for a, a little no-laying-up event. And, you know, the, the prominent statue, the, the kind mm-hmm. of the, the fist pump mm-hmm. and, and the leg in the air and, and how iconic that mm-hmm. is. Um, so so we, we roll forward then um, into, into the fall, and he's a part of the Ryder Cup team. The, the battle at Brookline, and there, there's another example, and I'll, I'll let you tell the story if you don't mind, uh, but but again, where the maturity and the grace and the, the change of Payne Stewart is, is really apparent. Can, can you tell folks about, um, obviously, his match with uh, Colin Montgomery on, on uh, Saturday?
1: Yes, yes, but I want to start on Saturday night. What happened that Saturday night in the team room? Um, I don't know, in the in the annals of sports mythology and mysticism, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a top-five moment for a long, long time. You know, the, the team is down 10-6. It looks like an insurmountable lead that the Europeans hold. Ben Crenshaw wags his finger, says he something about fate, and then he leaves the press conference and he goes to the hotel. And the players and the wives are in this room and players are asked not to tell their teammates what they're going to do to win the next day or had nothing to do with golf. It was all about what they, what they wanted to remember about what this week in, in Boston and and why this, why this was special and something happened. I don't know who started it. Uh, And I did talk to a number of players who, were in that room that night and Crenshaw and Bill, Bill Rogers, his co-captain, people have trouble putting their finger on it, but the, the, the mood evolved into something very raw and bare and vulnerable and very, very unusual for, uh, per- Professional golfers is how, how Sutton was a great, great help on this book. Um, and in one of our interviews, how, how remembered this night. And, and he said to me, you know, golf is a game where you're very protective of your secrets of, of, of your true self. You don't want, you don't want to be vulnerable because people might use that vulnerability. Another player might use that vulnerability against you on the golf course. So for that reason, golfers are reserved and a little, you know, hesitant to reveal, but that night they broke through something and pain was part of that. I don't want to tell you everything cause it's in the book, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I was going to say, don't, yeah, <laughs> but it was a, it was a really, really intense raw evening in that, in a, in a very warm way in that hotel room. And the next day they went out and they beat the Europeans now. There's also a, a very reasonable and logical explanation for this, and that is that uh, Mark James, the captain for the European team, put all of his best players at the back of the lineup, and Crenshaw and Rogers put their best players at the front, and that was that was brilliant. That was a master stroke. Payne Stewart was the last match on the course. He was in. He and Colin Montgomery were playing in the singles match right behind. Uh, Justin Leonard and Jose Maria. They were 150 yards away on the 17th hole at the country club in Brookline when Leonard holds the putt. Um, The match is over. The, the, the Ryder Cup basically is over at that point. They, Stewart and, and Colin Montgomery are literally the last two golfers on the golf course on the 18th hole. They're playing it through. Um, and They reach the green. Colin Montgomery is in a much better position than Payne. Payne's in the bunker on left of the of the green. Colin's on the fringe. Uh, Let's remember who Colin Montgomery was in 1999, or at least his his reputation. Um, Fans were abusive. They were they were mean. Uh, They shouted terrible things to Colin Montgomery, even in the middle of his backswing. So much so that Payne, Payne Stewart had to had to uh, um, have a have a, a spectator kicked off of the course, and he did. Like Payne Stewart went over to an official at the Ryder Cup and said, "Have that guy removed," and that guy was removed. Anyway, um, you know, the old Payne Stewart, the Payne Stewart before 1999, would have been very concerned with his individual Ryder Cup record, and he might have even had a. Um, a sort of uh, resentment or pettiness towards Colin Montgomery. But Payne Stewart in 99 was larger and more complete and more self-actualized, I think. And he, he did read The Room this time. And instead of having Colin suffer the indignity, perhaps, of losing that hole in front of these boisterous, drunk, idiot fans, he conceded, the whole. He just went over to Colin Montgomery and he said, "I think we've we've played enough, haven't we? I think we've had enough." And Colin, Colin was stunned for a moment, um, and he said, "Yeah, I think we have." And he shook Payne Stewart's hand, and Payne gave him the, the match. He surrendered the point that would that that was part of his Ryder Cup history. Let me tell you something. So Colin Montgomery is a kind of a hard interview, hard interview to get. His agent, his his agent gave me what he what what I thought was going to be fifteen minutes during a pro am in Houston to interview Colin for this book, and I thought, okay, I'll take what I can get. And you know, it's a pro am, so you got uh, Colin's playing with four other guys who paid a lot of money to play golf with him that day. I respect that. I've interviewed people during pro-ams, and I don't want to insert myself and, and, and take away from their their enjoyment. So Colin Montgomery was playing the the back nine in this pro-am in Houston. I met him on the 10th green. I mean, well, it was was his ninth green of the day. Sorry. I met him on the ninth green. We were going to have 15 minutes, so I figured I'd walk one hole with him. We walked eight holes because Colin (laughs) went into so much incredible detail. And his caddy that day, I guess his regular tour caddy, was the same caddy he had in Brookline in 99 and Colin just wanted to talk about that moment so much 20 years later.
0: Huh. Well, that's, that's, uh, I, so I'm a, <laughs> for many reasons, I'm a huge Colin Montgomery
1: oh, fan. Oh, good, because um, I am too.
0: And, and I think a lot of it stems from the fact that, you know, he, he did take so much abuse and there, and there's so, he, he's just such an interesting guy. And, and so that, hearing stories like this I, I it just makes me you know it, it solidifies that um one he, he's just a, a a very there's depth there to to the person that mm-hmm. he is uh but'm I'm, I'm glad to hear um you know he made time and and really looked back on that moment you know with a lot of um thought um so the the rider cup was in late september of 1999. And then um, the fateful flight of, of Payne Stewart and, uh, you know, several other people on board that airplane happened in, in late October. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your book goes into so much great reporting on, on everything around that flight. And um, tell me about that day in, in your life and, and what you remember. Do you remember, you know, how you found that news and and how you took that news? Oh, just in, in your personal life,
1: I do, of course, and and a lot of people do, even people who don't know golf. Um, you know, I've been talking about this book for more than two years, and um, not all of my friends and acquaintances know golf. So, but everybody everybody seems to remember what they were doing on October twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine. I was a staff reporter at the St. Louis Post Dispatch and uh i watched the uh i watched the event unfold on television all of the networks carried it live um i remember thinking to myself uh this this airplane could be literally flying over st louis right now uh it turns out that it wasn't it was a little west but um but yeah i remember very very clearly what i was doing on on that day
0: what was it like um, I am assuming, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming, did you have much experience reporting on aviation and what was that like really diving in, uh, to this event specifically, but, but more broadly kind of that, that field of, of aviation? I
1: didn't. Um, and that was a real shift in the, in the feel and the the tone of the story there, because, uh, everything to that point had been about, about Payne Stewart and about golf. Um, and, and now Payne Stewart is a, he's a passenger in an airplane that is incapacitated. He basically, so Payne and his uh, three other passengers, a golf course architect and two of his agents, they were flying private to Dallas to go look at some property that maybe might become a golf course for the, uh, SMU golf team. And then Payne was going to go on to the tour championship. He was one of 30 players in the tour championship at Champions in Houston. Plane takes off 20 minutes into the flight. The Jacksonville uh, air traffic controller clears the flight to ascend to um, its, its uh, flying altitude. And then the plane is expected to turn left or west and go to Texas. The last communication from the pilot—it was uh, the pilot not flying that day—was uh, um, a young woman who um, was uh, the co-pilot. She responded with um, an affirmation and said, "Good morning, Jax." And that, those were the last words the uh, that anyone heard from Flight N forty seven BA. It was a uh, it was a Learjet um, business jet it, uh, instead of turning left or West to go to Dallas, it just kept going straight and it kept climbing. Um, I, I didn't know much about aviation, uh, but, uh, but I do have a, a very good longtime friend who's a pilot. He's been a pilot since he was um, in college, which is where I met him. He now edits a, a magazine for, for pilots in Bethesda, Maryland. And he was kind of like the, uh, my, uh, Uh, guiding hand on writing this section of, uh, of the flight. And um, he would, he would uh, read passages for me, make very, very helpful, helpful suggestions, uh, save me from making a fool of myself many times. Um, I also had uh, another reader of mine was Bob Benson, who was the lead investigator for the uh, NTSB who, uh, that responded to the crash site in, uh, in South Dakota. So I was very insecure about writing about this flight, and so I needed people to like have my back here, and they did.
0: Was it difficult to track down? I, I know just I, it was actually one of the sections of the book that I, I kind of jumped to in preparation, and, and it's just so absorbing. Um, but you're able to talk to, you know, you're able to paint these pictures of the pilot and the co-pilot,
1: and it, w- was that difficult? No, there was just so much on the public record about that. Um, that was that was probably actually the easiest piece to reconstruct I mentioned that NTSB report that's 1,400 pages long and, and just incredibly detailed right yeah um, so so there's a lot of really good primary source uh, material there to work with
0: okay I, I think you know I, obviously it's it's all there in the book and and I, I would just you know f- folks can really read through that and get the full story um, on their own. There there's some general questions though I'd I'd love to ask you relating to the book and in the process of sure. writing. And really the, the first question or, or I'll I'll kind of wrap two questions into one is how how did your own perception of Payne Stewart change during uh, the process of, of writing this book? And was there anything that that surprised you the most
1: Mm, Yeah. What a good question. Um, and it's something that I, that I, that I've thought about for, <laughs> for two years. Um, so like you, I had this image of, of Payne Stewart, you know, there's a, there's an award, there's a PGA tour award named after Payne Stewart. That's That's, that's bestowed in the, in the spirit of sponsorship of, uh, of, uh, sportsmanship and, um, and Payne Stewart was not that person at one time. And uh, I guess what, the, what surprises me the most about his success in 99 is how far he had to come to achieve that. He didn't have this trajectory where he wins in 89 and wins in 91 and keeps winning and keeps going up. You know, his, that setback, that, that dark time, um, was a long, long way in in every definition personally, professionally, spiritually is a long, long way from where we ended up in 1999 And so I think that's what I did not know the depths of his struggle and and my appreciation for, what he endured and overcame to become the person he was in '99 just got just got a whole lot richer and bigger doing this book. It was a it was a big big step.
0: Was the Stewart family um, involved? Did they you know? Did they lend you help? You know, you mentioned his what widow uh, Tracy yeah.
1: and his children.
0: Did you talk to them?
1: Okay, so no. Well, I did not to answer your question, and and here's why when. Before I before I wrote the proposal for this book, I knew that I would have to have some kind of blessing from Tracy. If I don't have that, there is no way that Paul Asinger or Tom Lehman or Marco Mira, maybe even Hal Sutton and Davis Love and, and just on and on and on. Without that permission, blessing. From Tracy, none of this happens. I knew I needed to get that. Now, here's another thing. Now, this is this is like craft talk, so just like humor me for a minute. Yeah, please. No, no, please. I, I wanted to write this this book contemporaneously. In other words, I wanted to, I wanted it to sound like it was happening right before your eyes. And and so one of the rules that I bound myself to, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to write it in the moment, then I can't have people reflecting. I can't have people saying, I remember when Payne won the 1989 PGA Championship. I need to have people in 1999 on the grounds in August at Kemper Lakes saying whatever they said. And so I leaned a lot on newspaper and magazine and television coverage to uh, animate the story. And I don't have anybody looking back. I don't have anybody looking back. So so for that reason, I didn't necessarily need Payne Stewart's children to participate in the book because they were young when their father died. And Tracy had written her own so-called authorized biography of Payne, and that came out in 2000. And and that was a very helpful book uh, to me. So... If you follow my logic here, I didn't require Tracy's participation in the book. Now, did I want it? Of course, but it wasn't necessary because I'm writing it contemporaneously as if, you know, going through the years up until 99, all of this is happening in the moment right before your eyes like a cinema. Okay. So back to my, my need for Tracy's blessing. I wrote her a letter. And, um, I sent her a copy of my penic book to try to, I don't know, ascertain some sort of legitimacy or something and basically asked, uh, requested her, uh, her blessing to do the book. And she gave me that with a couple of conditions, which are fine, I, I, very agreeable conditions, perfectly logical. <clears throat> she, she also told me in her reply that she didn't, that she had said all she wanted to say about her husband and that she did not want to agree to interviews. Well, for the reasons that I stated before, that was fine with me. Okay. That's great. We, um, one day last fall, it it actually was literally last October. Um, I pretty much completed the book. Uh, I talked to all the principals and I think that maybe somebody had gotten back to her and said, you know, this, this guy is earnest and he's trying to be factual one day in October, my desk phone rings at, at, at UT. I look over. I don't rec- recognize the caller ID, but the name is Anastasia Stewart. And I thought, hmm, Stewart. I had to go to class in 10 minutes. I picked up the phone, and it was Tracy. <laughs> and she said the oddest thing. She said, I understand you might have some questions for me. Ah, oh, man, I was stunned. I said, I told her, yes, I have a million questions for you, but I have a class in 10 minutes. <laughs> so so we agreed to talk. Tracy and I talked for an hour and a half as she was driving to a cruise some weeks later. Um, I I sent her the manuscript when I finished it. She provided some incredibly helpful factual error correction. Um, she was, however, not she wasn't pleased with the portrayal of her husband. She thought it was too negative. And, uh, and that was kind of the end of it. Um, I was, you know, I was disappointed. Uh, It hurts to think that I took Tracy Stewart through the death of her husband again. I mean, you've, you've seen the detail of that, of that section of the book. Um, I'm disappointed naturally as a person, as a human being that, she feels like I uh, misportrayed pain, but at the same time, and I hope you under, I hope you can, you can see my point here. If Tracy would have loved the book, I think I would have been equally disappointed, but on a different level for a different reason. I, you know, I, I had a lot, I had a number of people who knew pain well, who were looking over my shoulder th- at this story as I wrote it. And, it's right it's 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 factual, it's who Payne was um and I think you know, of course Tracy wants his legacy to be more positive, but that's just who Payne Stewart was in the years leading up to to ninety nine that's all I didn't expect to tell you that much, but that that there you go
0: well <laughs> first I I I truly appreciate it. I think that's um, just really fascinating and and valuable context. And I I guess my only reply would be, I I don't, you know, I I certainly don't blame or fault Tracy. I don't either. I think that's a very natural, you know, position. And and also as, as a reader and as somebody looking for you know the the story. I, I also appreciate you know what what you've done and and you know the the course that you've taken um, to provide this book. So no, I, I just think, thank you very much for, for sharing that. Um, I do you mind? I have just a few more questions, but they're they're kind of beyond the book. No, please, um, of course. They're they're questions I love to ask, um, especially authors. Um, and, and my first one is. I'm just curious what, and this can be golf-related, um, but, but also not golf-related, what, what authors or, and books have been most influential um, to you through the years, if there are some that, that come right to mind?
1: Oh, now I get to sound really pretentious, don't I? Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is- Um, in, in all honesty. So I just want to start out by saying something, and this is not original. This is something that Lee Jenkins, who used to be the NBA writer for sports illustrated once told me, he said, I I may not know, I may not be well-read, but I know how to read well. And, and so I didn't come from a family of readers and I I was a little late to reading. Um, so I'm not going to, I can't be pretentious here because that's just not, that's just not part of my story, but, but there are some books that I return to frequently because they speak to me. Um, one, of this, one of them is Dispatches by Michael, Michael Herr, who was a magazine writer during the Vietnam War, and he wrote these essays about his experience in Vietnam. Another one is The Things They Carried by Timothy O'Brien which also coincidentally happens to be the the contact the uh the uh, material happens to be from vietnam i don't have this fascination with vietnam i don't know why these two books stand out for me it's just like the clarity of the writing the bluntness of the writing uh the sound of the writing the the density of the the of the fact and the research that that's so impressive um i took a really great can, cre- can yeah I, please can can i can yeah, i interrupt yeah.
0: you and just say that 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 tim o'brien book mm. um was when I asked Tom Coyne, um, who I'm guessing you're familiar with. I'm going to play golf with him next uh, month
1: in Austin for his book. <laughs>
0: there, there you go. Well, you guys can talk about Tim okay. O'Brien because that was the exact same book that, that he said when I asked him the same
1: That's question. That's so interesting. And, I think a lot of journalists yeah. uh, really connect with that book. I don't yeah, know why. Yeah. Well, sorry, I
0: interrupted you, please. I, I, I want to know the other, the other word. Oh,
1: so I took this... Uh, so I went to grad school in the mid-90s at Ohio University. You went to Miami, right? Are we rivals?
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's the only strike I can <laughs> hold against you. Um, but n- nobody's okay, perfect. Okay, cool. Uh,
1: anyway, <laughs> uh, there was a guy there named David Lazar who taught a, uh, a nonfiction, basically a personal essay writing uh, workshop course there that I took twice. I loved it so much I took it twice. And in that class, we were exposed to a lot of junk Didion, so like the, the collection of essays slouching towards Bethlehem, uh, is, is something that, that really sticks out with me. I also want to mention a book, um, that I read just this year that, uh, I really, really want you and your listeners to, uh, to give a chance to, it's called American Wolf and it's written by Nate, Nate Blakesley. Um, American Wolf is about A wolf in Yellowstone, the and it tracks the life and demise of of this one wolf, Uh, and through her her life and demise, it tells the larger story, the larger wolf, the story of the of the gray wolf in America, and it includes just some fascinating context. It's all about land politics and. Uh, I don't want to say any more because I don't want to ruin it, but, but American Wolf by, by Nate Blakesley um, is another book that's really spoken to me. Also anything by Wendell Berry. Um, uh, I don't know. I feel like we're going to stop there. Those are the high points.
0: No, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> what's on your, what's on your nightstand now? What are you reading? The big now?
1: fella, Jane Levy's uh new biography, newer biography of, of Babe Ruth. And I like it. There've been a number of, of biographies of Babe Ruth, but this one really is the story of how he became like the first athlete celebrity. Um, and it's basically the story of the modern celebrity now like Babe Ruth was was doing all of these uh, barnstorming exhibition games and he had this like really clever crafty agent who was uh, uh, getting him deals on the side i mean Babe Ruth Babe Ruth was making more money from his uh, what we'd call today endorsements than he was from playing baseball so that's what it's uh, it's a big sturdy tall book and I've been working my way through it for about uh, a month and a half and I'm almost done. It's a, it's a, it's a real gem. It's wonderful.
0: Nice. Nice. Um, talk to me about the current state of your golf game with, <laughs> with the book wrapping up. Are, are you going to be able to golf? Is it, have you been uh, able to play a little bit? Yeah.
1: So I, I submitted the manuscript back in the spring. Um, I did, uh, I did make my, uh, valiant and, uh, not so triumphant return to golf over the summer. It was, it was a little harder to get things back. I kept, I kept saying to myself, like I'd get to like the third or fourth hole and be like, Oh fuck, this isn't going to be like, it's not coming. This isn't going to be the round, the, the comeback round I was looking for. And I'm still looking for that one turnaround round. Right. Uh, but, but I did. So I, I played play the I play the Texas Mid Amateur qualifier every year, and I always make a point. Texas is a big state, so this gets hard. But I always make a point of going to the hardest qualifying site based on uh, rating and slope, because I feel like the only chance that I have to advance into the to the to the uh, championship is you know shooting a an eighty on a hard course because there's no way I'm going I'm I'm going low on an easier one, right? I just not in. I love yeah. that. I love that. So strategy. listen, listen. I was the first alternate out of the uh Lufkin qualifier this year at a beast of a golf course called Crown Colony. It's the hardest 60, 60 600 yard course in the universe. <laughs> and so I got first alternate. And as it turns out, because the rating and the slope were so high at, at Crown Colony, I was the fifth overall alternate into the Texas mid-am this year. And I got the call two days before the mid-am that my, my number was up and that I was in the field, but the mid-am this year was at this, at this equally beast, beastful course called Merido golf club in Dallas. And I played it a couple of months ago with that guy, Lamar Haynes, I mentioned earlier, the team, uh, Payne's teammate at SMU. And, um, this thing, listen from the tips, it's rated at 80. <laughs> <laughs> so my game was in no shape to play this golf course. So I politely and gratefully declined the invitation to be in the field for the Texas mid-am. I'm glad I did because two under won this thing. Usually, you know, I mean, Texas is full of great golfers. Uh, usually two under isn't going to win you a state championship, but it did this year. I didn't play. I'm glad that I made it into the field. I'm going to try again next year because the mid-ams at Oak Hills in San Antonio, a Tillinghast course that I absolutely love. So right now it's not so much. I'm looking for my turnaround uh, round of the season. I am, as of this moment, undergoing preparation for next season.
0: <laughs> I, I do. I, I I do want to mention that y- you have qualified for the Texas Mid Amateur before. I from I did from your uh, <laughs> from the bio on your website. I just I just love this line. I I, I hope you don't mind if I read no, of it for not. folks. But it was 2012. Um, you, you, as you say, you, you got through a seven for two playoff to advance to the Texas Mid Am. And, um, you said you, you finished a distant last in the field, but you're still at it, always will be, I suppose. And I, as somebody who loves golf because of the, because of that search, because of that journey. Yeah um yeah. i i think that that line really stuck out to me i, I think that's so cool and obviously you are a very good players so it's um i i i i hope i, I think next year might be your, might be your year
1: i want to try to get in on this this jacks uh action you guys have with the uh, the eagles well the birdie the challenge birdies. yeah yeah that, that yeah well yeah well, the yeah it's
0: gonna be eagles I was going to say, well, that's we've made Solly because he's uh, because of his handicap. Solly has to eagle all the par fives in addition to to birdieing all the holes. Um, so yeah, that that's our little handicap. But yeah, come come on out to Jacks. We uh, we we'd love to have all right, you.
1: We'll make it happen someday.
0: Uh, awesome. Uh, well, Kevin Robbins, thank you so much. Uh, one more time, H- your new book is The Last Stand of Payne Stewart. Um, the year that golf changed forever. Uh, depending on when folks are listening to this, the release date is Tuesday, October eighth. Um, and I just, I, I can't thank you enough for the time. And I'm, just, like I said, I have the copy. I'm so looking forward to, to really diving in and, and being able to read. Um, thank you.
1: Oh, Phil, thank you. This has been a really, really fun hour or so, and um, I'm just really grateful for the time. Hi.